Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to greet all of you. Welcome to our service today. I want to welcome all you folks joining us online, wherever you might be. It's great to have you here. We always are uh, blessed when we have guests join us in our service. And so if you're a first-time guest, thanks for being here today. Grab a Bible and go with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew in the fifth chapter. We are continuing this weekend our journey through the Gospel of Matthew in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. And while you're turning there, let me just mention something. I'm so thankful that um, I'm able to be back in the pulpit this weekend. I took a weekend off last week, and I appreciate Chad Ranson, our serve pastor, filling the pulpit for me while I was gone. And I want to just share something with you this morning. You know, Chad is from this area. He grew up out in Clayton, Indiana. His mom and dad lived there. His dad's been the pastor of Hazelwood Christian Church for well over 30 years, a great faithful ministry there. Got a brother, Aaron, and a sister, Amber, and uh, this last Monday... Uh, Chad's sister Amber died suddenly and tragically, and uh, she was 34 years old, and uh, so this has been, a, as you might imagine, a really difficult week for the Ranson family, and we're really, honestly, we're so blessed today to have their family in our service right now here at 10 o'clock, and um, just thankful that they're here and just pray for their comfort. I went to the funeral service yesterday morning at their church, Hazelwood Christian Church, and what a tender and uh, emotional service that was, very meaningful. But uh, we want to pray for their family. So they're sitting right over here on my left, and we want to pray for their whole family. So Chad's brother Aaron is here. He's a pastor in the Lexington area. Chad's a pastor here. Chad's dad, Steve, been a pastor at Hazelwood for, as I said, well over 30 years, his mom, Kim. What a great family. What a great legacy of faith and faithfulness. Let's just, would you bow with me right now, and let's just pray for them. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the chance that we have to worship you today. And we're reminded today that when we come to worship, we can come from all different places in life. And our hearts can be filled with all different kinds of things. And uh, one of those is a deep level of grief and sadness. But it's, it's comfort that we get from you. I know in my own personal life, when I'm at the lowest moments in my life, I don't want to be, I don't think I want to be anywhere more than I want to be in church because I feel your presence. I know your presence isn't limited to a building or a geographic location, but I love your church and I feel your presence in your church so strongly and I pray in the name of Christ that that will be the reality for this family this morning and help them to know as we pray with one heart and one mind and one voice that we love them, we care about them, and we lift them up. Thank you for your goodness, God. Bring comfort, bring peace, and we pray that together in Jesus' name, and everyone agreed and said, amen. amen. Hey, a couple of weeks ago, a woman here in church asked me an interesting question. After one of the services, she asked me if the ancient Greek language was written with punctuation. You know, the uh, New Testament that we have was originally written in the Greek language, the Old Testament originally in the Hebrew language. And so she asked me if the Greek, uh, if ancient Greek was written with punctuation. That was really a great question. She's a great student of the Bible. I know that. It was a great question because when it comes to studying the Bible, this kind of thing that helps us in our, in our study, and it's important because the answer to that question is no. The ancient Greeks didn't have anything equivalent to our modern device of punctuation. In fact, 
uh, punctuation wasn't invented until several centuries after the time of Christ. And so the uh, oldest copies of both the Greek New Testament, and because this was also true for the Hebrew Old Testament, the oldest copies, the oldest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament are written without any kind of punctuation. It's even more interesting with the Greek language. In ancient Greek, they wrote with no spaces between words or paragraphs, and so their, their, their texts were just one continuous string of letters with an occasional blank line to mark the end of a major section. Now, that sounds odd, but we have something that's similar to that. We call it a hashtag, right? In fact, I'm going to put one up on the screen so you can just get a feel for what that must have looked like. My pastor rocks. I love to hear him preach. He's the best, the absolute best. I can listen to him all day long. <laughs> I actually didn't write that. I had something different, but they must have changed that upstairs in the, in the crow's nest this morning. Well, <clears throat> given that reality, you can just imagine how, how challenging it must have been for folks who translated the Scriptures to make sure they got it right from the ancient Greek into, for example, the modern English today. It had to have presented some unique challenges. Having said that, I really believe that what we have in our modern English Bibles is a, is a very accurate rendering of the New Testament Scriptures. There are times, honestly, though, however, when I remember that truth, especially with regard to the way our English Bibles create paragraphs, because it wasn't written in the original language with paragraphs. And I think about that this morning as we come to our next passage in Matthew chapter 5, which is Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. We just finished the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and then we moved to verses 13 through 16. In our English Bibles, there's a paragraph as if those passages are separated, but I think you can make the case that in the beginning, Jesus' intent was for it to be one long, continuous passage of Scripture, and so verses 13 through 16 really are connected to verses 1 through 12. I want to try to show you that this morning. So, if you got your Bibles open there to Matthew 5, like we always do, I want to invite you to stand in reverence and respect for God's Word. If you're a guest, we do this every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service, and uh, we love God's Word. We respect and honor God's Word, so we stand to read a section of it. And I'm going to read, while our text is verses 13 through 16, I'm going to begin in verse 1, Matthew chapter 5, and read through verse 16. Now, everybody look up here. This is the last time you're going to hear this entire passage of Scripture, I promise, okay? I promise. But uh, bear with me today. Here we go. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do, people put, excuse me, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Now, 
I don't know if you remember this or not, but several weeks ago, we were about halfway through the Beatitudes, and I told you that a few months ago when I decided I was going to preach verse by verse of the Gospel of Matthew, I went ahead and kind of outlined the, the Gospel uh, to get an idea of the passages I was going to preach. And I told you in the beginning I was going to preach the Beatitudes as one single message, <laughs> which obviously I didn't do because it feels like we've been there for about three years in the Beatitudes. But I wasn't just going to preach the first 12 verses. I was going to preach Matthew 5, 1 through 16, all as one message. And I even, for whatever reason, on that particular occasion, that day in my office, I put together an outline. And I'm going to share that outline I was going to use with you. The first two points are going to be really familiar. The first thing I was going to talk about was that God promises happiness that's real. The second thing I was going to talk about was that real happiness comes in unexpected ways. It's all about attitude. And the third thing I was going to say was real happiness can't be ignored. Let's just take a few minutes to talk about that. First of all, God promises happiness that's real. We've talked about this multiple times. Nine different times in verses 1 through 12, Jesus uses the word blessed. And I told you, in the original language of the New Testament, that's the Greek word makarios, and while it might be translated blessed in our English Bibles, the closest English rendering is the word happy. Jesus is talking about happiness in verses 1 through 12, but it's a different kind of happiness. That's why we say God promises happiness that's real. The happiness that we normally think of in the world is a feeling, and we know that a feeling of happiness can be here one moment and literally gone the next. It's that fleeting. But the happiness that Jesus promises is, or that God promises, that Jesus describes is more than that. It's a deep level of inner contentment that is unaffected by the circumstances of life. How many of us know that and experience that in life? That God gives us something that's like an anchor deep down in our souls, and no matter what happens around us, even, even when we can feel deep levels of sorrow or sadness or grief or fear or anxiety, whatever, we have that anchor that holds us. The second thing that uh, we would talk about is that real happiness comes in unexpected ways. It's all about attitude. And really what I've told you as we went through the Beatitudes is that more than anything else, what God is talking about in the Beatitudes is salvation, this real happiness that God is talking about, that, that God promises that Jesus is describing is in fact salvation. Salvation is found in a right relationship with God and the Beatitudes teach us how to have a right relationship with God. And it's not about right actions, it's about right attitude. It begins by talking about being poor in spirit and then about mourning and then about being meek and then about hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being merciful and on and on and on. These are attitudes, not actions. The third thing I was gonna talk about is real happiness can't be ignored. And what I, I, what I mean by that is I really believe that what Jesus is telling us is that when we experience this real happiness that God promises, that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are really the attitudes that lead to salvation, then it will change your life in a way that can't be ignored. When you experience that, it will change your life in a way that simply can't be ignored. And Jesus describes that change by using two metaphors. He talks about salt and he talks about light. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And the reason why he uses those two metaphors is that salt and light can't be ignored. They can't. Now, we could spend a lot of time this morning talking specifically about salt and light. We could get really specific in our explanation, but I don't think that's necessary. When I look at verses 13 through 16, Through the lens of the world that Jesus lived in, the ancient world that Jesus lived in, I think the application is really simple. So let's just spend a few minutes talking about each one of those metaphors. First of all, let's talk about salt. Jesus said in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now listen, salt in Jesus' day, remember, we're looking at this through the lens of Jesus' life in the ancient world. Salt in Jesus' day had two primary purposes. It was used to season. We all understand that. Salt gives flavor. My wife, how many of you, my wife gets after me because she says I use too much salt all the time. I tell her when we sit down at the dinner table, just look away. (laughs) We use it for seasoning. Uh, It gives flavor. But the second main purpose is it was used in ancient days to preserve. And without question, because there was no refrigeration, the main use of salt in ancient days, in Jesus' day, was as a preservative, primarily for meat. Salt didn't prevent the process of decay in meat, but it slowed the process down and kept it from spreading. Meat left to itself would spoil, but meat that was cured with salt would last a long time. And so, here's what I want you to understand. I really believe it's this preservative quality of salt that is the primary application of Jesus' statement when He says, you are the salt of the earth. Let me ask you a simple question this morning. Is there anyone here today who doesn't understand that we live in a decaying world? And I don't, I don't say that to be harsh or judgmental. I say it as a point of fact. We live in a decaying world. And I'm not talking about physical decay, although you could make that point. I'm talking about the reality of moral decay. I'm talking about the reality of spiritual decay. We live in a world with no moral boundaries. We live in a world that doesn't recognize any absolute truth, especially not any absolute spiritual truth. And so we have to realize that a big part of God's will for us as Christians, people who have the very presence of God living inside of us, is to provide the kind of preserving influence that can keep this world from decaying even faster than it already is. But the problem is this. As distinctive as salt is, Jesus says in the latter part of verse 13 that salt can lose its saltiness. In fact, look back at the latter part of verse 13. Jesus says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, here's why Jesus said that. A lot of salt in Palestine, especially salt that was found on the shores of the Dead Sea, was contaminated with gypsum and other minerals. And as a result, it became tasteless, and in some cases, it became very bitter. So when a batch of salt like that that had been contaminated was found in someone's household, the first thing they would do is throw it out, but they were very careful where they threw it. They didn't just throw it in the ground. They didn't just throw it in a garden because it would kill everything that was planted there. Instead, they would take that contaminated salt and they would throw it on a road or throw it on a path where it would be gradually ground into dirt by the people walking until it disappeared. See, here's the deal. Salt can't really become unsalty in a technical sense, but it can, because of contamination, lose its value and lose its function and lose its usefulness. And the same thing can happen to us as believers. We can lose our value and we can lose our function and we can lose our usefulness, our distinction, our witness, our testimony when we allow our lives to be become contaminated by sin or by worldliness or by the pursuits of the flesh. So we've got to take strong measures to keep that from happening in our lives if we're going to be the salt of the earth and a preservative in this decaying world like Jesus wants us to be. 
Look at these words on the screen from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. Nobody understood the importance of guarding your life against this kind of loss than the apostle Paul. Now, we don't have time to look at this whole passage, but it begins in verse 24 with Paul talking about runners running in a race and making sure they're not disqualified. And then he kind of, Paul often used athletic uh, illustrations and metaphors, and they talked about himself. He said, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like someone that's just beating the air. And then he said this, no, I beat my body. He's using hyperbole there. He's not talking literally. He says, no, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Now, Paul is saying, I'm not going to take any chances related to losing my opportunity and my credibility when it comes to be a servant and a messenger and a witness for Christ. In ancient, we know that in ancient days, there were Olympic games. We know Olympic games go way back. But also in ancient days, there was something, there was something called the Isthmian Games, very similar to the Olympics. And the competition was so strict in these Isthmian Games, and I think that's what Paul is referring to here, that if a contestant failed to meet the training requirements, he was disqualified. He wasn't even allowed to compete. And Paul didn't want something like that happening to him. And so he said, I beat my body to make it my slave. You know, that's so interesting because the truth is most of us are slaves to our bodies rather than our bodies being slaves to us. I mean, if we were honest, we would say that's the truth. We're slaves to whatever craving, to whatever desire, to whatever feeling that we have. And Paul says, I don't want to be that way. I beat my body to make it my slave. I don't want to lose my credibility I don't want to lose my usefulness as a result of sin. We need to follow Paul's example. You know what? I don't know what you do when you pray in your personal life. I hope you have a personal prayer life. Every Christian should. But when I pray in my personal life, I I try to never ignore the confession of sin because I'm a sinner, first and foremost. I'm a sinner saved by grace just like everybody else in who can claim the name of Christ in their life. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so I, I believe in the confession of sin. Uh, it, it, I believe in asking for forgiveness. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so there's a couple of verses that I try to remember. And oftentimes I will literally quote these verses when I'm praying. One of them comes from Psalm 51 and verse 3. It was by David. It was written about his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And as a part of this prayer that he wrote as a psalm, he said, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Another one comes from Paul, the same Paul who was so concerned about losing his witness and his usefulness, his saltiness, to use Jesus' terminology in Matthew chapter 5 in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, I don't say those things. I don't reference those things to try to beat myself up. I'm not some kind of a masochistic Christian But I don't want to lose my witness. I don't want to do something foolish or stupid in my life that takes away my ability to be a credible messenger for Christ. And it's so easy. How many of you know it can happen just like that? We stumble into sin so quickly in our lives, we have to keep our guard up all the time. One of the main reasons why Christians, one of the main reason why the, reasons why the church has oftentimes become so irrelevant in the world today is because there's nothing distinctive about our lives. There's nothing distinctive about our living and our testimony and the words 
and the witness that we share. We've lost our saltiness. Let's talk about light. Jesus said in five, uh, chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. There are a lot of things we could say about light, but just like we focused on one singular thing with regard to salt, let's just focus on one singular thing with regard to light. The primary purpose of light is to illuminate, to illuminate. And Jesus said, as he was talking about people who had received the gift of salvation, this happiness that's real, that God promises, that Jesus describes in the Beatitude that we can receive in our life. He says that we need to let our light shine before men in such a way that they see our good deeds and give praise to our Father in heaven. In other words, our lives, the quality of our lives, the way we live our lives, the things that we do in our lives should illuminate or shine a light on God because living to please Him should be the priority of our life. And people are always drawn to light, especially people who are in darkness. They're always drawn to light. I don't know if you know this or not, but I write a devotional every week for a ma- or every month for a magazine, a monthly magazine that's published here in our community. It's called Icon. I'm thinking that most of you don't know that because nobody's ever come up to me and said, wow, that was a really good devotion this month. <laughs> and they are. They're so good. No, I'm just kidding. But a few months ago, I wrote one, and I shared this story. I ran across a story by a man named Earl Palmer in a book called The Enormous Exception that I think illustrates what we're talking about. Palmer had met a young man who had become a Christian after a long time of wrestling with doubts and questions. And one day, Palmer asked him how he made that decision in the midst of those doubts and those questions. And the young man said that what had tipped the scales in his spiritual journey were the actions of a Christian classmate when he was a pre-med student at the University of California. He went on to explain that one semester he got very ill with the flu and he missed 10 full days of classes. And he said, without any fanfare or any complaints, there was a classmate of mine who was a Christian. He wasn't a friend. We were just basically acquaintances. But there was a classmate of mine who was a Christian who carefully collected all my class assignments and took time away from his own studies to help me catch up after I'd missed those 10 days. And the young man went on to tell Palmer, he said, you know, this kind of thing just isn't done. I wanted to know what made this guy act the way he did. I even found myself asking if I could go to church with him. And so somebody's, somebody's actions, somebody's deeds were so different, so unique, so distinctive uh, that a man wanted to know what causes you to act this way. And in the end, a light was shown on God. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that, you may see, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's what this light that Jesus is talking about does. It illuminates God through the actions of our lives, through our good deeds. And so here's the thing. We all have this, we all have this responsibility to be the light of the world, every one of us. We have a responsibility to be the salt of the earth, but we also have this responsibility to be the light of the world. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Put that verse up on the screen. Now, look at that verse. How many times does, does Jesus use the word your? One, two, three. Personal responsibility here for all of us. Your light, your good deeds, your Father in heaven. We have an individual responsibility to let our lights shine through our good 
deeds. One more interesting thing about this, this idea of the light, and especially related to verse 16, where Jesus says that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. There are multiple words in the original language of the New Testament that are translated good, multiple words, many, many words. The two most common are the Greek word agathos and the Greek word kalos. Now, here's the difference between the two. Agathos is a word that refers to being good in the sense of being morally upright. It's a word that talks about being respectable and honest, uh, being a respectable or an honest person uh, living within biblical boundaries. That's the meaning of the word agathos. Kalos refers to being good in the sense of doing good things. It's good in the sense of being attractive and being helpful and being admirable. It's good in the sense of well done. And what we need to understand is that when it comes to letting our light shine through good deeds, we're going to always be much more effective as witnesses if we focus on being coloss good rather than just agathos good. Let me try to describe that like this because I don't want it to be confusing. Let's say you're walking down a street, perhaps a downtown street, and you come to some kind of adult bookstore, some kind of pornography shop, and you want to be good. You want to be agathos good. And so you quicken your pace, and you turn your head the other way, and you don't even cast a glance at the store, not the window, not the advertisement, not the message, not anything related to that. And that's, listen to me, that's exactly what you should do. We should give no provision to the, to the lust of the flesh with regard to that kind of a thing. There's no good thing that can come from pausing to look or showing any kind of interest in something that is as displeasing to God as that. But let's say you walk a couple more blocks down the street and now you come to a Starbucks. In front of the Starbucks is a shivering homeless person begging for enough money to buy a cup of coffee. But you do the same thing. You quicken your pace and you turn the other way. You've just missed the opportunity to be coloss good. Now, being agathos good is important. Being agathos good allows us to be the salt of the earth or a preservative agent in the world today. But being coloss good is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. That's the word he uses when he talks about let your good deeds, good deeds cause people to praise God. Agathos is about rules. Coloss is about relationships. Agathos behaves. Coloss blesses. Agathos does what's right. Coloss is willing to forgive those who don't do what's right. You see the difference? That's the word Jesus uses when he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your coloss good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, I want you to listen to me close because I'm sure there's going to be somebody misunderstand me. We're not going to make an impact in the world for Christ today by being, just being agathos good. As important as that is, we're going to make an impact by doing coloss good. And it's time, I think, for a lot of us as believers to quit making being agathos good our first priority and to choose to live coloss good lives that shine a light on God.
I'm not saying it's not important to be good and to live a good life because that's absolutely necessary to be the preservative agent that Jesus is talking about when he says you're the salt of the earth. But if you're going to make an impact, if our church, the church anywhere is going to make an impact on the world, Jesus says it's by doing coloss good, good deeds that shine a light on God. How cool would it be, friends, if we came to church every week and we told stories like the one that I read from our friend Earl Palmer in that book, The Enormous Exception, how cool would it be if we could come to church and tell stories that didn't happen in someone else's life but happened in our lives? Because we regularly, through our good deeds, shone a light on God. Our first priority, our first priority cannot just be to be good. We also need to do good. Now, you know what made Jesus, and we'll bring this to a close. Brian can come. You know what made uh, words like this from Jesus so significant? You know what made Jesus such an incredibly powerful teacher? How they used to say that Jesus was different from all the other rabbis because he taught with one who had authority. He just had a different style. You know what made Jesus such a good teacher? I'm going to tell you as we close. Jesus taught not just to transfer information, Jesus taught to change lives. Jesus' teaching was not just about transferring information. Jesus' teaching was to change lives. And I'm going to tell you something. We've wasted our time here this morning if we don't walk out the door with a conviction to do good, to do coloss good and make a difference in the world. It's good to learn new things. It's good to, to gain information. It's good to, to, to get insight into the Scriptures and look at it from a different perspective than we ever saw before. And I hope that happens to you every time you come to church. But it's a waste of time if all we've done is get information and we don't put it into practice. So who, whose life can you make an impact on this week? Who, who, who is someone that you can, you can do good for this week for the sole purpose of shining a light on God? That's the real question. Father in heaven, we thank you for...